Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What makes you free? Is it the ability to make choices about your life? Is it having access to sufficient opportunities or resources? Philip Pettit, the Galway-born philosopher, best known internationally for his writings on republicanism, provides a different answer to the question of freedom. You are free, he says, if you are not being dominated by another. And this definition has implications for how we view power relations today, such as the power relations between individual human beings and huge multinational corporations. Before turning to the question of corporate domination, I asked him about his concept of freedom as non-domination and whether it could be traced to a tradition of Irish republicanism. You actually get that concept, I think, very clearly in the, in the letters and some other writings. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I've looked at them, of Wolf Tone. So, for example, Wolf Tone, when he leaves Ireland in 1791, uh, because the United Irishmen, his group, has just been basically banned by the government, uh, he goes to North America. In fact, he lives near Princeton, where where I operate partly now, and he writes in a letter that he could never live, he uses a Latin phrase, cum permissu superiorum, which means with the permission of superiors. And his idea is that even if the authorities chose to be nice to him, to be kind to him, to give him, so to speak, leeway or latitude, uh, he would always depend on them to maintain that goodwill. So he'd be just acting, as it were, according to his own wishes, by their leave and favor, by their permission. But that means that they're the ones in charge. So he's actually hitting exactly on that notion of freedom. And, of course, it's there in very popular thought, the idea that if you've got to tug the forelock, you know, or uh, tip the cap or bend the knee, if you've got to kowtow, as we say, curry favor, that sort of thing, then that means that even if the person you're currying the favor of is very kind to you, lets you do as you wish, the fact that you need to curry favor, the fact that you need them to remain goodwilled in order for you to act as you wish, that means you're not free. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of applications to that. Uh, one of them you kind of touched on there around charity. And is one free when one's dependent, for instance, on charity for survival or to meet one's basic needs? Well, my own view is that one is not, really. If you're, um, if you're fully dependent on the charity of somebody else for being able to just live your own life, to exercise your own basic choices, your fundamental liberty, then to that extent, that person has a power over you and you are dependent on their goodwill or dependent on their indulgence. Uh, there's a long republican tradition, but it's as powerful in Ireland in the 18th century as it is anywhere else, according to which you are not free if there is a dominus or a lord in your life, if there's someone who's a master of what you uh, are able to do. Turning to one other big area that you've, you've focused on, which is group theory, and um, a lot of people have grappled with this, the rights and responsibilities of groups versus individuals. Just talk us through that the, the conventional view is that, if you like, groups are just collections of individuals, but you've challenged that notion. 
Well, there are actually two conventional views, I'd say, and curiously, they're at opposite extremes. So one is the view that's more or less conventional amongst a, in a certain tradition of economists, and the other is conventional in a, a legal tradition, particularly United States tradition. The economist tradition suggests, as it were, that um, corporations or corporate bodies or group agents in that sense, and they include, of course, commercial corporations, financial corporations, but also universities, the state itself, and indeed churches, for example. And the economist line is that they really aren't proper agents at all. It's just a faction, a façon de parler, that we talk about, for example, BP doing something or the Bank of Ireland taking a view or a particular church, you know, announcing principles that it's going to be uh, guide its pastors by, its priests by. Uh, they say that's just a façon de parler. There isn't really an agent there. They're just individuals. The other approach, the other extreme, also conventional but in different circles, is the one you get in America, under which corporate entities or agents or groups are treated as if they were really natural persons, so that uh, by the decision of the Supreme Court over a hundred years of, of uh, judicial decision-making, uh, they enjoy the protection under the Constitution as persons that were designed initially to protect, for example, slaves that have been emancipated after the, uh, after the Civil War. And where do you place yourself in this debate? Well, you know, <laughs> it sounds terribly trite, but actually I do place myself in the middle in the following sense. I think there is um, no doubt... It, it requires extraordinary unrealism, it seems to me, to imagine that there are no such things as group agents. Yeah, you mean you've got to ask yourself, what is an agent, for example, and then uh, why do corporate bodies count as agents? And I think when you do that, it becomes pretty clear that you have to regard these corporate entities as agents. Now, having said that, of course, the question is, well, how do they compare with individual human beings? Now, with individual human beings who clearly our agents as well, we design a system under which, that's the law and morality I suppose, under which individuals are given, for example, rights, and they have, in other words, rights determine basically the boundaries and which those individuals can act according to their own wishes without having to give an account of themselves to others, it defines the sphere of their activity, but equally they're held we hold one another to two certain standards in the exercise of uh, of those liberties so that they they shouldn't exercise them or go beyond the domain of their freedom in hurting others in various ways. Those are the responsibilities, and we hold people to those responsibilities in law, but also in morality. Now, when it comes to corporate entities, the question is we have to give them rights, of course, in law. If they exist, they've got to pursue certain purposes according to their judgments, so that means they have to have a sphere within which, a sphere of liberty really, defined by rights that allow them to make judgments on these or those matters, that allow them to form certain purposes, that allow them to pursue those purposes according to various means. And unless they have rights that define that sphere of activity, of course, they can't exist or operate as agents at all. However, when it comes to the question of, well, how many rights should they have? What sort of latitude of choice should we give them? Uh, well, then now you begin to get a big difference between the rights we think that individual human beings should have and the rights that we think that corporate entities should have. I've got a simple bottom line, and, and, and that is this. We should design our institutions, our laws, are norms that give rights and responsibilities to individuals and to corporate entities. We should design them in every area 
in such a way that that is for the best from the point of view of individual human beings considered as equals within the society. It makes possible the flourishing of individuals within the society uh, where they are each of equal concern to, to the system known as privileged, known as an elite. Now that basic bottom line argues for giving individual human beings rights, we call them the basic liberties, rights of choice within which they can operate autonomously. It also argues for giving rights to uh, corporations, but a much narrower range of rights to corporations, I would say. But with each, with both individuals and with the corporations, within the domain of rights they have, they should be exposed, each of them, to being held responsible for staying, as it were, within the boundaries allow them, and for not trespassing on the welfare of others. Uh, both corporations and individuals should be held responsible in their own right. In practical terms, what problems have arisen, if you like, with giving rights to both individuals and organisations? There might be a perception, particularly in, in austerity hit Ireland, that, for instance, by giving both rights to the individuals and rights to organisations such as banks and financial institutions, in effect, nobody um, has been held responsible for the actions, if you like, that have, have brought about problems in the Irish economy, for instance, or, or collapse of banks. I mean, you, can, you can translate that to other organisations where a, a, a harm has been done to society and neither the individual nor the, the organisation has been held responsible. Is that a, a problem from giving um, rights to both sides that, that each can kind of point the finger across the divide? Well, if you give rights to both sides, of course, equally you give responsibilities to both sides. So I think it's very important when an organisation behaves badly in the sense of breaching, so to speak, the rights it's been given in the sense of causing harm to others, uh, it's very important that both the organization or the corporate entity can be held responsible in its own right, for example, perhaps exposed to the rigors of the criminal law, for example, and that individuals within the corporation who uh, could have refused to play a part in the wrongdoing of the organization, they too should be held responsible. Just coming back to your conception of freedom, and I suspect I know your answer to this, but do groups or uh, corporations have a right not to be dominated? The two questions arise with any agent. One is what, um, uh, what rights, so to speak, and freedom does the agent have? And the other is uh, how dangerous is the agent from the point of view of other agents, right? So both questions arise with the corporation. So in the case of corporations, if they're going to have a place in our social and economic life, of course they have to have a sphere of corporate liberties defined for them, and they get rights that establish, so to speak, what those corporate liberties are. Those corporate liberties, however, should be much more restricted than the fundamental liberties of the individual liberties that we give individual human beings. But within that sphere of corporate liberties, of course they should be protected by the law, uh, against, uh, for example, intrusions by others within that sphere, by other corporations or indeed by other individuals, so that they've got a place within which they can operate without, so to speak, fear or favor. But that place has to be severely restricted. And now that brings me to the other question of you treat an agent both as a, an enjoyer, a bearer of liberty, but also as a danger to the liberty of others. Now, corporations not only are, are I think, particularly uh, dangerous and worrisome as sources of domination for individual human beings. That, you know, can be shown in all sorts of ways. Uh, let's just take one simple example. A corporation 
like another individual human being, if it tramples, trespasses, so to speak, against you, in theory you can bring the corporation to the courts and charge it under law of contract or tort or get the state even to charge it under criminal law perhaps. Well, here's a problem straight away. Corporations in many countries, I'm not quite sure what the situation is in Ireland, first of all, their legal costs are tax deductible. So there's an advantage they have straight away over you as an individual, whereas your costs are not tax deductible. The second issue is that these corporations um, have an indefinite lifespan. So they don't have an anxiety about getting this issue settled. Say they trespassed against your environmental rights, as in, you know, destroyed, for example, your possibilities as a fisher person, you know, of fishing because of oil spillage or whatever. They can go on in the courts for years and years and years. They've got no problem, right? They exist forever in principle, at least they can do. Whereas you, of course, are going to be subject to anxiety and time pressure. So there's a second advantage. A third advantage, of course, is that corporate entities are repeat players within the law. They go back time and again. A wonderful comment by uh, an American sociologist of law. He says, it's true that human beings and sharks can both swim, as it's true that both individuals and corporate entities can go before the law. But while individuals and sharks can both swim, only sharks are in the swimming business. The same is true of corporations. Only corporations are in the legal business, you know. You just basically are in a position of deep asymmetry of power if you're dealing with a corporation in cases like that. But that was just one example I wanted to give you of why corporate entities are a danger to individual freedom, that we don't have. They have legal privileges, which we don't have. They have legal powers, which we don't have. And, um, and they've got legal expertise that no individuals, short of very rich individuals, will ever have. So immediately, they are a source of domination in that respect. But equally, we know within any country, a corporation of any size has got a usually very huge lever leverage over those in power so that they can push those in power to make laws that suit them, that are to their advantage. So, for example, they can threaten to go overseas, or they can threaten the local politicians or whatever, that they'll move to another area of the country unless they campaign for their rights. They don't even have to do this, actually, because the politicians will always second-guess the needs of the corporate entity to keep them sweet, because it's in the politician's electoral advantage, obviously, it's everyone's advantage to keep the corporations around if they're giving, say, large employment. But that gives them a huge advantage in, um, in regard to how the law is going to be framed. And I think you find this worldwide, where we get a push to reduce corporate taxes, very relevant in Ireland, I'm afraid. We get a great push to reduce uh, corporate regulations. We get a great push to... And make environmental uh, prerequisites, you know, uh, restrictions on corporations ever laxer and so on. So corporations represent a powerful challenge, I think, in this world today um, to the freedom of individual human beings, both within particular societies and, of course, across uh, different societies. Does a country have a right to be free from domination? And um, going back to one thing you said earlier about that concept that um, if you're depending on charity, you're not entirely free. And for a long period, Ireland was said to depend upon the kindness of strangers to help itself out of its, its economic woes. Um, how, how do you deal with that one? Actually, this is a topic that in the book you mentioned, Just Freedom, the recent book, I address explicitly. So here's the sort of general structure of the way in which I, I think. 
When it comes to the freedom of individuals within a specific country, as I mentioned earlier, there are two aspects really to that freedom. One is you've got to define for each individual, and of course for individuals equally, a range of, of choices, a range of fundamental liberties within which they can act according to their own wishes. And the second thing you have to do is you've got to ensure that they are protected within that sphere and indeed resourced within that sphere. That involves legal protections, of course, of the law, but it also, for example, can involve allowing the formation of um, not explicitly political bodies to provide protection. For example, unions traditionally have played an enormously important role in protecting individuals in the workforce against domination, I would say, as possible domination. Of course, it can work the other way too, but in protecting workers against the domination of, of their employers. Now, when it comes to countries, you get the same two requirements. In order for a country to be free as a country, first of all, you have to have an international system, I would say, in which the sovereign liberties of each country are defined. Uh, so, for example, you can't allow a country, for example, just mine as it will, just manufacture as it will, because of the global bads that can be produced, you know, pollution and so on. So you've got to define in an international system what the liberties are that each country should have. And then you have to have an international system um, of regulation and of, um, you know, international agencies and bodies and international law under which countries ideally are protected um, in the exercise of those sovereign liberties. Not only that, but for countries that are destitute, I mean, third world countries and so on, you've got to have um, not just protection, but even an international system of aid whereby they're resourced in order ideally to bring them up to a level where they can act, so to speak, um, according to their own wishes as a country. The, the one caveat, of course, I'd put in, in a system that defines sovereign liberties for each country, um, those sovereign liberties have to be restricted so that no country, no government in effect, can oppress its own people. So they have to be... Um, there has to be that special sort of restriction on these particular corporate entities, countries, states, governments, whatever you want to call them. Now, in the world as we have it at the moment, there, there, are, really, there are two big issues in international relations from the point of view of this ideal of, so to speak, countries each enjoying a system of sovereign liberties protected by international law, etc., in the exercise of those liberties. One is the problem of, for countries that are relatively democratic, at least that respect human rights, as we say, which are not oppressive, what sorts of international conventions defining sovereign rights should we have in place? What sort of measures should we have for changing them and so on? Now, I think there's been a, an enormous development for the good on that front since the Second World War, for example, when we have emerging systems of regulation and standard setting and so on and international law that more and more define exactly what the liberties of countries are, for example, when it comes to fishing on the high seas, you know, and quota sort of systems, etc. They're all to the good. They're defining what countries each can do, or its fisher people can do, so to speak, um, without, without getting the permission of anybody else. That's all to the good. The other big aspect um, is, and let me just on the first, of course, say that um, the ev ev evolution of a system of international law and convention and standards whereby these relatively respectable countries, you might say, behave well towards one another and live in a system of, of, of peace, uh, that's far from ideal, but at least I think we're sort of on the road there. But then the second big problem, of course, is that many countries do not belong 
in that club, so to speak, for either two reasons. Either the governments are oppressive or the governments are impoverished. The country is impoverished, so the government is ineffective. And so we've got those two big problems, uh, apart from the problem of establishing an international order for relatively well-ordered societies or governments. Now, how you deal with those problems, as we know, is a huge issue. So I would say on the oppression side, we can't, of course, threaten military intervention with every country that a state that oppresses its own people by international standards of oppression because of the collateral costs. It just simply be unworkable. But again, there's been some development, the idea of the embargo against countries that are doing this economic embargo, the diplomatic isolation and so on, the financial um, restrictions that can be put in a country. Those represent tools, I think, whereby hopefully over the longer term, we can um, restrict oppression uh, in individual countries by the international order. But I have to say, you know, this is a Hail Mary wish because, you know, when you see the size of a country like China and its determination, for example, not to go the democratic way, to be controlled by an elite, to suppress free speech and so on, that's really worrying. It's really also worrying what you see in America, you know, where you get basically an indifference towards the international order very often, a sort of uh, the idea that to pay heed to the United Nations is to not be a patriot, you know, and in a country where the elite, the rich in this case, more and more control what's happening in law. So there are big problems there, it has to be said. Now, on the impoverishment side, the dealing with third world countries, the big issue there, of course, is that countries like to tie foreign aid to their own interests. But that just makes these countries into debtors, you know, of the rich countries. It actually beggars them in a way. Uh, just as we said earlier, the charity can actually be indebtorizing, as you might say, it can make people into the position of debtors and, and dominated in effect by their donors, by their very benefactors. Same can happen internationally. So we need a system of multilateral aid, I would say, that operates side by side with the NGOs in order to provide for the development of these countries that are in this impoverished position. But these, I'm very conscious that these are all very facile general remarks, you know. Um, it's hard to avoid that when you go more abstract and think about the system as a whole. But I would hate to sound either too dark, too pessimistic, but equally I'd hate to sound too wildly, you know, um, starry-eyed and optimistic. It's, it's a tough road ahead, but, you know, we can, we can just st stick in there and stay fighting is really the, the only hope. Philip Pettis, thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.